It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On this episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the Internal Market Bill, and you ask us how different are the new Tory MPs to the existing ones. So we're recording the day that the Internal Market Bill will be coming to the Commons for its second reading this evening. So depending on whether you're a subscriber or whether you have yet to be tempted to subscribe, you may be hearing this at different times. But we're going to discuss the bill's implications and also its future in general anyway, sort of dodging the question of of what we think is going to happen this evening. What is the mood like in the Conservative Party? Stephen, you've been writing about this this morning. So I realize the reason why I struggle with this is the one word answer is is the same, which is pretty poor. However, the reasons for that are so varied and that makes it seem like the party is more unified than it is, right? Then so because basically there's a group of people who are deeply concerned about the rule of law, who include people who are long-term committed Brexiteers. One of their number described himself to me as emotionally opposed, right? Mm-hmm. They said, yeah, they said, look, this goes beyond ideology, right? They were just like, the rule of law is for fundamental principles, said, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, you've had some people who've, who've gone so far as to resign. Raymond Schisty, who was the PM's envoy on freedom of religious belief, has already quit. And so there's basically people in that tendency, you know, your Jeffrey Coxes and whatnot, who are unhappy with the bill for that aspect. And that kind of basically splits across the Remain Leave line. You have people who are unhappy with this bill from a sort of unionist perspective, which again does split across a Remain Leave line. And those type of people, they tend to like the bits of the internal market bill that we haven't talked about all that much yet, which is obviously the stuff that like reserves certain powers about infrastructure and where you can spend it to Westminster away from the devolved parliaments. But they deeply dislike the fact that this, you know, categorically would not prevent a regulatory border of sorts in the Irish Sea, right? It thins it a little bit, but it still exists. The things that the British government would say it will ignore under this do not obviate the regulatory border in the Irish Sea entirely. Then you have people, you know, kind of committed leavers who still don't quite trust Boris Johnson, who worry this is an elaborate routine of... Which I guess basically the overwhelming mood is kind of distrust and I would say unease. People who are, for a variety of reasons, uneasy about where they're going and don't really trust Downing Street, which is partly because because the parliamentary management is, I know I've said this before, but poor is really the wrong way of looking at it. They just don't do it in a kind of conventional sense that we would recognise. People don't feel they know where the government is going and so they kind of feel uneasy and sort of, I kind of think it means we 
kind of got a situation where like the average Conservative MP, and obviously there are exceptions to this, some of whom listen to this podcast and will probably by this point already have texted me to tell me that I'm wildly generalising. <laughs> the average Conservative MP is basically just deeply kind of in a sort of state of like, half of them going, well, what's the plan? And the other half going, I'm really concerned there is no plan. Alva, how much does this sort of makeup of opposition remind you of previous Brexit battles? I mean, is it any different? I think it is quite different. I think the dividing lines are different. And then I think with a different parliament, there is a much like lower remainer presence on the Conservative backbenches. So the drama is the same and the fun is the same. But I think <laughs> apart from that, it feels a bit different. I think in terms of Stephen saying that the main concern among Conservative MPs is this question, you know, what's the plan? I think that's the really interesting one, like their concerns and, and how those are being answered. Because I think that, as Stephen was saying, I mean, there are, there are sort of ERG types or unionists who have concerns with the bill for different reasons. But the sort of more moderate Conservatives, you know, many of whom are former lawyers who are worried about implementing this bill and, you know, breaking international law, they, um, I think, have been asking ministers for reassurance and have been kind of trying to work out what the government's plan is because as Stephen says they really don't do like parliamentary party management very well at all as we've talked about a lot on this podcast before to the extent I mean because it's not just us I mean journalists write about this all the time about Boris Johnson's poor relationship with his backbenches you'd think that they would have put in a bit more effort by now but uh, you know a zoom call on Friday where Boris Johnson doesn't even take questions and only about a third of the parliamentary party can sit in on the call is really not the way forward but yeah I think that when when Conservative MPs speak to ministers asking privately for reassurance on this. I think basically what they're told is that this is a negotiating tactic. So I think people are hoping that they can vote for this, knowing that it won't really happen. And then the second part is they're being told that it's also necessary as a safeguard in case talks break down. And then, you know, as Stephen was saying, then suddenly you won't be able to to trade goods in between GB in Northern Ireland. So as you wrote, Stephen, on Friday, that's the kind of the excuse that MPs have been given to justify voting for this. It might not be enough for some of them. But the thing I find mad about it is that the story that has been spun quite successfully since Brandon Lewis's appearance in the Commons, where he said that this would break international law, is basically that this is necessary because the EU threatened to take the UK, or GB in particular, off its list of approved third countries. So basically, GB wouldn't be able to export animal products, so like meat and dairy products and eggs and shellfish, wouldn't be able to export them into the EU, but crucially wouldn't be able to export them into Northern Ireland. And that, like, that third country list has you know, most countries in the world on it, or, you know, certainly a, a huge number. And it was always assumed that the UK would be on that list. But apparently in negotiations, it was implied that they wouldn't be put on this list. And so the GB wouldn't be able to export things like eggs to Northern Ireland. And that would be, you know, a huge red line for them. But the mad thing about this internal market bill is that it doesn't address that. So that story was briefed to Harry Cole in The Sun on Tuesday and then in PMQs Boris Johnson alluded to it and then 
other ministers as the weeks have gone on and then over the weekend have been clearer about this threat. So like we've had lots of government ministers sort of speaking on the record about how the EU made this threat. But the internal market bill deals with trade from Northern Ireland to Great Britain, to the mainland, and it deals with state aid, but it doesn't deal with trade from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. Like there are some caveats in it about, you know, notwithstanding other law. And we maybe would need a trade expert to tell us exactly how this would work. But basically, like the big story that's being spun about why this bill is necessary doesn't really add up. I find it staggering. So I think that some Tory MPs are becoming wise to that. Sure, in some ways, this waters down the effective economic border that would be brought in with this bill between Northern Ireland and GB. But the idea about threats or so on from the European Union doesn't really stack up. Yeah, I think I think that's really, really interesting about the way it just doesn't stand up even on the terms that it's being sold as, you know, those legal holes, as well as the sort of baked in breaking of international law in that bill. It's interesting that you're saying that some Conservative MPs are sort of waking up to to it in terms of those problems as well as the whole matter of breaking international law. And the fact that there's a lot of lawyers on those benches also makes a big difference. My ears pricked up when I heard that one of the rebels in the House of Lords was Michael Howard, because he's been a sort of hardline, quite loyal Brexiteer throughout this whole time. And he he's a lawyer. And I remember he's just one of those people who I was constantly trying to get to interview, because after all of the shenanigans of Boris Johnson and what was said about sort of lawyers and the judiciary and the prorogation of parliament, I thought that Michael Howard might be a good person to interview and and would have something to say. And I think the most I got out of him was, I don't think I would have prorogued parliament. <laughs> he was very <laughs> diplomatic. But now he's, you know, he's because of this aspect, this breaking of the law aspect of, of the bill, he's, he's, you know, completely affronted by that. And I think he said something about how can we sort of, how can we reproach Russia or China if, if this is our international conduct. And I think that's, you know, that's an extreme example of it because it is a it is a Brexiteer who has been outraged by this latest intervention. But I think that kind of outrage will trickle down to the less obvious sort of people who have been on Boris Johnson's side as well as the the, the the more obvious candidates as well. So I do think that that aspect of it, you know, almost regardless of, of where people are along remain leave lines or are along, you know, what kind of deal they want and what kind of future they want with Europe. I think this seems to have been an unwise sort of gamble in terms of what the Conservative Party can stomach. And then the person that we haven't mentioned yet is Geoffrey Cox, the mm. former attorney general who intervened with an interview um, secured by our former colleague, Patrick Maguire. He has intervened and written for The Times to say that he'll be abstaining this evening on, on this bill and that he can't possibly support it in, in quite strong terms. And I think, as you say, Anish, with the example of Michael Hard, it's exactly the same with Geoffrey Cox that he's a Brexiteer and spoke at Boris Johnson's um, leadership launch. He was the person who advised Boris Johnson and co that it would be lawful to prorogue Parliament. So I think him speaking out against this is much more significant, really, than former prime ministers who supported Remain. I think, if anything, that bolsters a sort of Brexiteer's cause about the establishment not wanting to get Brexit done. But the Geoffrey Cox intervention is different. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things, you know, obviously we've talked a lot, and rightly so, about the shortcomings of this Downing Street parliamentary management. And that, it, and it is, you know, 
bad at it in a way that you couldn't fairly say of basically any other government that we've had, and certainly not any of the three Conservative governments, four Conservative governments that I have covered before it. I'm counting Cameron alone and Cameron with Clegg as two separate governments. But the thing that this government now suffers from a kind of only semi-its fault is Conservative MPs are starting, and apologies to those, those Conservative MPs who listen to this because I'm going to completely fail to get the contempt out of my voice here, are starting to wise up to this kind of, oh, we've got to sign this to get sufficient progress. Um, don't worry too much about this um, in the absence of agreed solutions, which was the original language for the backstop stuff. It, we, we've got sufficient progress. It, it's brilliant. Don't worry about it. Oh, don't worry about this bit about trade. It's fine, which was the second bit of the backstop. Oh, no, I've signed a brilliant deal because we've kept no deal on the table and I'm tough. I'm a big, tough, scary Boris. No, you haven't. You've literally signed up to the European Commission's original proposal with a mechanism on consent that it was realistically, right, Dorman is never going to have a majority to trigger that that majority on consent, right? So it's, it's, you know, it's literally like signing a trade deal saying you can do what you want, provided you first, you know, just the prime minister moves a paperweight using their mind, right? And at every stage, the executive has basically got Conservative MPs to vote for something by going, oh, no, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. We can worry about the detail later. And I think the interesting thing is, is that, of course, this is the thing Conservative MPs are divided on, right? Because half of them were basically told last time, don't worry, we'll we'll bring forward something called the Internal Market Bill. Obviously, they didn't have a name for it. But, you know, they were, don't worry, we can unpick the border protocol once we're out. And the other half were told, don't worry, this is set in stone and we can have our hard Brexit without worrying about the peace process, without worrying about the rest. And I think crucially, we may now be reaching the end point of the ability to kind of govern through theatre. Now, obviously, like this speaks to the sort of wider problem in our democracy, which is backbenchers are woefully understaffed. They can't really afford to have the specialist legal advice as a matter of course, that they as legislators ought to be able to have access to. Yeah, this is why one of the questions we got maybe last week, maybe the week before, was, you know, what's political capital and how do you tend it? Now, it's obviously an invented concept, but I think it's useful for measuring things like this, right? Which is that you gradually as a government just lose the ability to go, trust us, it's fine. And even though I don't think they will run out of the ability to go, trust us, it's fine this week, or indeed next week when the next stage of voting happens, I think it's just one more step on the road of it just getting harder and harder to like get their business through because people have just got quite worn out by, no, 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 you have to do this. There's a lot of theatre around it. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. This question is from Ben in Tower Hamlets. 
What is the ideological makeup of the 2019 intake and how does it differ from the 2017-2015 intake? And I think that's specifically about Conservative MPs. So yes, what was your sort of snap instincts when the new intake of Tory MPs came in? Yeah, um, so I'll be interested to hear both of your answers to this too, because I would be wary of giving one simple characterization of the ideological makeup of the 2019 intake versus the other ones, even though I think that there are some broad trends, which is that basically they are similar ideologically to the kind of the ideological tendencies or leanings of the 2019 Conservative Manifesto in really broad terms that they are kind of this also tallies with the the kinds of constituents that they have in their seats and um, particularly um I mean I'm thinking mostly of the new intake in like the red wall but they would be kind of culturally conservative but more keen on a, on a leveling up agenda in simple terms so more sort of economically liberal and and more comfortable with state intervention i think that would be my the closest i would go to, to giving a broad brush characterization but i think it's an interesting question because within that there are already some definite characters coming out and within that some some obvious differences so i think on things like the the trans debate for example or you know on cultural issues generally if someone like deanna davison who's the new mp for bishop auckland who would be sort of small c conservative in terms of her cultural attitudes even though she she often has like very cool dyed hair and she's like quite young and fun and really good at social media but she she broadly conforms to those sort of culturally conservative values on the kind of culture war stuff should be firmly you know saying rule Britannia proudly patriotic and is and appears to have no qualms with the internal market bill for example she wants to get Brexit done but then there are others in her cohort like Alicia Cairns who's also I don't know if I if I should say Cairns or Cairns in my accent you can write in to let me know but she has been making a mark in a different way she was on the cover of the Daily Mail slash Mail on Sunday over the weekend, pushing for women in labour to be allowed to have a partner because due to coronavirus restrictions, people giving birth have had to do so alone. And, you know, obviously we've we've loosened up quite considerably. You can go to the pub with people, you can go to the cinema, but you can't have a partner with you in labour. And it's apparently been quite traumatic for a lot of people at a really difficult time. So she's been kind of spearheading this campaign. She's writing to every other MP in the House of Commons to address this. But but she's also quite strident in her support for LGBTQ rights. And she wrote with four or five other MPs from the 2019 intake, encouraging the Conservative Party to bring in self-ID for trans people which for people who sort of follow trans legislative issues is a legislative change that is supported by Labour and was provisionally supported by the Conservative Party. Theresa May launched a review into it and it's basically been put on ice under this government. And trans issues being, unfortunately, as they are such a sort of hot button issue on cultural things, those 29 intake MPs have kind of signalled that even though they're kind of 
they're you know Boris babes gosh I'm good that, that just that, that sounds horrible but you know like they're kind of like <laughs> they're, they're kind of the Boris generation who came in under his get, get Brexit done agenda but they don't necessarily conform across the board and all these issues mm. so there is some variety but Stephen what would you say to how you characterize the ideological makeup of the 2019 intake? It was really interesting to hear you say because I guess my sort of take on it would actually be diametrically the opposite of that, which is that not that different to what's come before. So in terms of the kind of, you know, God, I'm going to sound like someone's granddad, but in terms of the like long-term shift that is sort of evident, right, when you, if you sit down and talk to someone first elected in 2005, right, you're like, oh, you know, you seem like really into Thatcher and sort of semi debate yeah, like, but still actually, even in 2005, like, yeah, kind of, they will all have basically said to get selected, they'll have said something like, the European project, this disastrous, this, this, this burden on our productivity. But they might go, but you know, actually, I quite like the single European act. And then, you know, in 2010, you talk to someone from the 2010, and they will, again, have had to do the kind of like, this rotten project, this disaster, this thing that we are yoked to. And they're like, yeah, I think we should probably leave. I mean, I wouldn't want to do it myself. I don't want to have to spend the next 20 years leaving the EU. I want to deliberalise mar- I want to liberalise markets instead, right? And then you get to the 2015ers and they're like, yeah, we need to leave it. Yeah, let's leave it. I mean, you know, let's try and stay in the single market, but let's leave it. And then you get to like the 2017ers. And they're like, yeah, I love Thatcher, but you know what? I really hate the EU and we just need to get out of it and we need to get out of it tomorrow. And I really do not care how much China we have to break to get there. And you then get to the 2019ers and they're sort of even more like, you know, Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. I think also, I think they come across as being more economically left than they actually are, right? For the same reason that like, why did it become more difficult to deliver budgets after 2015? Because broadly, everyone is in favour of cuts and fiscal rectitude up until the point their rec centre closes. And so essentially, because the seats in the Conservative have won have already borne more austerity, the MPs for those seats are more likely to be, no, we can't have more cuts here. But when you actually talk to them about kind of like what I think of as kind of attitudinal questions, they're still quite right wing on economics, right? Now, of course, the the question is, is 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 how reconcilable is that? But I guess you know, just as and maybe this is you know, kind of like me sort of fighting the last war. But I feel like lots of the media coverage of them is a bit like, oh, you know, all of those liberal conservatives who like defeated Lib Dems in twenty fifteen. You know, just just because there was like a left winger in that seat before doesn't mean that than they are now. You know, lots of them. I mean, you know, obviously, like he's a weird example because he's right at the crest of the landslide. But like, you know, someone like say. Richard Holden, you know, like former SPAD, the kind of person who would probably have like expected to become an MP five years later, seven years later in a by-election, maybe even 10 years later, and eventually, you know, kind of end up like at the least in like a minor cabinet post, but instead like, because, you know, becomes one of those like people who like continually has to bob up and say, Prime Minister, do you agree with me that my constituency is the nicest place? And yeah, <laughs> like make an effort to be like, you know where's great? Your incredible margin, incredibly marginal constituency. So I don't actually think the Conservative Party has, in terms of its personnel, has changed all that much ideologically. In terms of the the non Brexit shift, you know, the kind of like you know the sort of the the kind of pro markets element. But of course, as a project, it has. And so I guess in some ways, right, they are exactly playing out the dynamics that we're seeing in how people are voting, which isn't 
It's not that they don't have the same economic views. It's just they're deprioritized at the moment. Now, the big question is, will that polarity kind of snap back, right? I was about to say, you know, the second year, obviously the economy is in a huge amount of trouble now. But, you know, we're basically still at the stage where, like, some people are feeling the pain, but mostly people can see the tide and they're like, oh, that's going to hit me, isn't it? The question is, is when that tide hits, does the fact that, like, you know, there are more conservatives in 2019. And also, we all kind of forget the like former spads in safe seats who have kind of like, you know, impeccable conservative credentials are, you know, very normal as it, you know, in terms of what we would expect for a conservative MP in normal seats who also do have a very strong kind of like, don't forget the South. And they're deeply worried that, you know, this conservative project doesn't care at all about the core seats and return Tories. And then they're essentially, you know, kind of like Labour in 2005 and then, you know, it looks great now, but there's this big sort of rotting sort of edifice underneath them. So that was just a very long-winded way of saying, I think it's kind of mixed, but I think it's actually a lot more Tory than than like a lot of mainstream coverage would suggest, partly because I think we do often tend to, as an industry, be like led by the most eloquent maiden speeches, which just often aren't very representative. Yeah. If you look at the coverage before the election and the candidates that we that people were excited about, they were people like... I think it was Lee Anderson in in Ashfield, wasn't it, who um, Patrick went up to go and interview. And he was someone who sort of, you know, with his sort of East, East Midlands accent and his his background in the in the pit town. He was a miner. You know, he was a really perfect person to profile. Not saying that, you know, Patrick shouldn't have profiled him because it was a fascinating piece on the road on the election. But he almost was taken to represent this new crop of Tory MPs who have come in, you know, in these former Labour heartland seats. Will they change the face of the party? But actually, you know, there's so many new Tory MPs from different parts of the country. I think it's nearly a third of the party are 2019 intake MPs. So, of course, there's going to be different faces to that party. And I, what you were saying about the sort of former SPAD, normal Tories in southern seats who have the kind of politics that you'd expect. My mind jumps to someone who I interviewed, the candidate for East Devon, who is now the MP there, Simon Jupp. You know, he's he's an example of someone who would probably not want the Conservative Party's politics to change too much for for constituents in his seats the difference i guess is that is that these people were voted in on a manifesto that at least in tone maybe not in substance as much as they'd like to suggest with their rhetoric which we've done a lot of work on the gap between rhetoric and 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 substance in terms of spending announcements nevertheless in tone this manifesto was appealing to people who want more spent on their public services who want more infrastructure There was a line in it, which I recently dredged up about, you know, limiting the tax advantages for the wealthiest in society. You know, there was a suggestion there that there would be tax increases on the wealthy. So they've come they've come in on this manifesto that is slightly different, that is sort of Boris Johnson sort of esque in the sense that it's trying to please everyone and it is populist. And so how much will this intake, this jumble of ideology among these new Tory MPs have to sort of stay loyal to the tone of that manifesto? How disappointed are their voters going to be if come the budget they vote down taxes on the wealthy or whatever Rishi Sunak decides to bring in that runs counter to what Conservative MPs would usually be comfortable with to try and fund coronavirus measures as well as everything else that was promised in that manifesto that will be i think i think we haven't really seen which way these conservative these new conservative mp's lean until they're tested in that way you know are they being torn between letters being sent to their constituency office about x y and z and what 
the government wants them to vote for in Parliament. And that's when they make when they have to make those difficult decisions. That's probably when we'll see what kind of MPs they are. That's a good point. And that basically we've we've all reached the conclusion that there are that there are basically too many MPs in the 2019 intake to say something like meaningful about their ideological position relative to other intakes. But I think that maybe the useful thing isn't so much their exact ideological positions, but basically the divide that is just a function of the constituencies that they represent. So regardless of their fundamental economic feelings or positions on exact cultural issues, where there's variety kind of across the board, some MPs, as you're both saying, are in post-industrial towns or in northern sea and are representing constituencies with hugely different priorities to shire seats. And I think that that's where the, the useful distinction is. I and mean, we saw it a little bit Katie Bowles wrote a really good column and some other pieces on this, the sort of the tension between Waitrose Tories and what was it, Little Conservatives or something like that, but basically that... Green Marketeers and Waitrose Protectionists. So that basically as a function of the constituencies that different Conservatives represent, they have different interests in trade negotiations and in like huge parts of government policy in terms of, you know, the budget responsibilities and as you say I think that in terms of the the new MPs in northern seats elected on a leveling up agenda they have vastly different concerns to the MPs even from the 29 intake who are in like core Tory seats and who worry that the interests of their voters are being neglected. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Alva Ray. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.